Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I often think about how unobvious it is what's good about writing. You know, no, no obstetrician goes home at the end of the week and says, oh, I delivered 20 babies this week. What's the point? You know, <laughs> but for writing, it's just not at all obvious what the point is. What is this you see? A new episode of Varvet International. Yes, when I by chance got the opportunity to sit down with one of my favorite authors ever, I couldn't resist it. I was at this grand Swedish publishing house to pick up the biggest release in the country this year, the new Millennium book by David Lagerkrans, and I got to speak with a wonderful person there who mentioned that Jonathan Safran Four was coming to town. Voila, I got to chat with him for an hour, and what you're about to hear is the result of that. Jonathan Safran Four is 40 years old and a half. Uh, you'll understand why I mentioned that in a bit. He lives in Brooklyn in New York City and he published his first novel 15 years ago. The debut is named Everything is Illuminated, an extremely original book about the protagonist's journey to Ukraine to search for his roots. It won nearly every prize there is except for the Swedish Nobel Prize, but I don't think they hand that out to debutants yet. The second one is called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, a fantastic piece of literature. Then Jonathan took some time off to work on an art project called The Tree of Codes and in 2009 he released Eating Animals, a very well-researched book on the meat industry. And last year he released his third novel, Here I Am. That being said, I don't want to dwell so much on his books in this interview. He always gets to talk about them, which of course is natural for a writer, but I wanted to get to know the person behind them. And I think I did, a little bit at least. So let's get to it. This is Varvet International episode 47 with me, Christopher Triumph. It's produced by Clara Valin and presented in cooperation with Acast. Here he is, Jonathan Safran Four, recorded in Stockholm, August 2017. Roll the tape. It feels like you've been on a perpetual book tour for the last year or so. It feels like that to you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why does it feel like that to you? Because I've been uh, reading up on you and it's like you had a Q&A here and then you had a Q&A there and it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my experience of it is that I'm home most of the time mm. and then I will in one week do an awful lot, travel around quite a bit, and then I'm home for another couple of months. So I don't think of my life, even during these busy periods when a book comes out, as being one of traveling. Okay. I really do feel like I um, have a very quiet life, home life. But do you enjoy it when you're on the road like this? 
I do. I especially enjoy Europe, I should say, for a couple of reasons. One, there's just a different reading culture, you know, and a different literary culture. So in a city in Europe, often I'll be at a literature house, which is like a beautiful building that's devoted to, you know, books and They'll pair me with some interesting writer or journalist to talk to. And there's always a nice audience that have interesting questions. And I'm in a city that I want to see, like Stockholm. In America, you do like 25 cities in 25 days. Sometimes they're wonderful. Um, sometimes there's just a bookstore where you're asked to kind of go stand on stage and fill the time, and which can be quite hard. And it's hard because it... In, because it just feels like a performance rather than something genuine. And it's extremely tiring as well. My uh, guess is that you get sort of the same questions over and over again. It's funny. I think journalists have a lot of anxiety about that. I get asked by journalists all the time, how do you feel being asked the same questions over and over? That may be the only question that I'm asked over and over. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't feel that way at all to me. You know, it's just... Different people are different and different contexts are different. So even if it's the same question, for some reason to me, it doesn't feel at all repetitive or mechanical. Because your answers aren't really. I've been listening to maybe 10, 15 different Q&As with you. And it feels like it's new every time for you. Well, oftentimes it really is new. Um, But every time I try not to repeat myself, I just... For no good reason, and sometimes you have to, because some some questions have one very uncomplicated answer. Mm. Like, are you about to finish a novel? No. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. there's no other answer to that yeah. question. But most questions offer different ways of looking at them or thinking about them. And I would prefer trying a new way, you know, when I can. And now, for instance, you just uh, had a Q&A here in, in Stockholm in front of maybe 250 people or something like that. It feels like you are very comfortable in that situation. I am very comfortable in that situation, but I'm very uncomfortable in other public situations. Such as? I really don't like it when I'm not in conversation with somebody. I don't like having to go fill the space myself and give a speech or a talk. Um, Stand-up comedy is not your next field of business. No, probably not. I also do better when I'm further from home. You know, anything I do in New York makes me quite nervous. And almost geographically, the further I get, the more comfortable I feel. And I have the hardest time with very small audiences. So the other day I had to introduce a friend at a dinner party for it's like a fund a political fundraiser there may be 20 people and i was shaking and i wasn't even the person doing the speaking i was just introducing somebody you know it was a very nice group of people it was not judgmental but something about the intimacy of it made me so nervous yeah. i was shaking my face was trembling but then speaking in front of a large group maybe because it becomes abstract you know there's like a, a kind of distance i don't know one thing that's I would say is a little bit overlooked with you in general. I might be wrong. Is the fact that you're really, really, really funny. <laughs> um, I guess I found that funny. 
is it overlooked? Boy, I sure think it's overlooked, but I think it's overlooked by my family and friends. <laughs> okay. I don't know about readers at large. This book was different than my other books. Mm-hmm. I think it was funny in a different way, more explicitly funny. I don't even know if you mean in my books or if you mean in interviews or what. I mean in general, mm. actually, both. Well, let's see if I can be funny today. Yeah, we'll see. Generally, when you're interviewed, it's about your latest book project. It's not that often about you. And according to the internet, you were born in 1977, uh, grew up in Washington, D.C. Can you tell me... Today, by the way, is my half birthday. Just a little point of trivia. Congratulations. August 21st, which means my birthday is... February 21st. Yes. It's uh, eight days before my birthday, actually. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we, I can try to guess your age. Yeah, if I'm, you want to. I'm going to guess... I would ask you to stand up and turn around, but that would be strange. I'm going to guess you are... Oh, shit. It's very hard to do, actually. Hmm. I'm going to guess that you are 38. Thank you very much, sir. I am... 100. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, I'm turning 44 next time. That's what I was thinking uh, in my head, yeah. But you chose 38 to be polite or... It's just better to guess low. Yeah, smart. Anyway, I've never been to Washington, D.C., but where in the city did you grow up? Well, I grew up in in Northwest, so the city is divided into four quadrants. And uh, it's a very segregated city. You know, white people live in Northwest, black people live in Southeast, and it's it's got to be just about as racially divided as any city in the country. It's a very black city, and yet I knew hardly any black people growing up. I, I lived in the city itself. A lot of people live in the suburbs of D.C. In fact, when I tell people I'm from D.C., they almost invariably ask me, in, in D.C. or in D.C.? Okay. Uh, and I actually grew up in D.C. All right. Is that uh, good? It just depends how you look at things, yeah, okay. you know. Mm-hmm. I, it was good for me. Yeah. I, I lived in a very old-fashioned kind of neighborhood where kids ride their bikes around the street and, you know, sit on their front steps and talk about baseball cards. And I had a lot of freedom growing up. Was it a freestanding house or an apartment? I grew up in a freestanding house, you know, fairly modest. It was on, we had a little yard. And uh, what we had, more importantly, was an alley behind the house. Mm. In Brooklyn, there are no alleys anywhere. In fact, in not that many cities are there alleys. And I love alley culture. It's kind of like a shared public park among the neighbors, except that it's paved. You know, Mm. it's like an urban park. Mm. And we would play football back there and play baseball and water gun fights. And a lot of my childhood memories are located in that alley and we lived in a kind of almost like a literary neighborhood not in the sense that people read books but in the sense that they could have been characters in books you know there were the the evil twins there were these identical twins who lived down the street we had a neighbor across the street who was a real weird character he had an invisible swimming pool in his backyard and he'd invite us to come over and do invisible swimming so basically he had a, a yard the size of you know, a rug and it was just grass, but there's one little lump in it where it was uneven. And one day he just started referring to that as the diving board. Okay. And then that was the diving board for the invisible pool. And we'd go and we'd think, you know, joke around and laugh. It was wonderful. There was the big hill. So there was the triangle, which was a triangle of grass. 
again, it was probably the size of like, I don't know, what was it the size of? An extremely fat woman's vagina, maybe. <laughs> it was just not a big thing. But um, there's one edge of the triangle that was a, a little hill, which we called the big hill. And we would take our bikes to the top of it, our sleds to the top of it, and dare each other to go down it. And I went back there not long ago, actually when this book came out, when I was in D.C. And to call it a hill is, you know, it's a, a very slight incline. Like if you were to rest a marble at the top, it might not even roll. But it's amazing how the things that seem so big... You know, when you're a kid, seems so small now, and vice versa. But it sounds like you, you had a fairly safe uh, upbringing. I did. I mean, there were events in my childhood that were not safe at all. Like, uh, there was a guy, kid who went to my school who was shot randomly on his front lawn while mowing the lawn. A crazy person just came up and shot him. A friend of mine was struck by lightning and killed. When I was nine years old at my school, I was in a summer school class, And we were making sparklers. It was a chemistry program, and um, it exploded. And a lot of kids were very, very badly hurt. I got really lucky. I was hurt. I went to the hospital for a few days, but not not badly. But my best friend was severely disfigured. He spent nine months or something in the intensive care unit. So, yes, there was something idyllic about the childhood, but there was also trauma. You've been talking about that before as well, and it seems like there was a before and after that event. Could you tell me how it changed you as a person? Well, like most things that dramatically change you, you don't always know how. I mean, I don't have a life to compare my life to. I have the before to compare it to, but it's, I don't know what kind of person I would have grown to be. But it seems like because you've uh, sort of described yourself as you were flamboyant, which is funny for a kid to be, I guess. Uh, I do know a flamboyant kid. He's fantastic. But did that trauma take that side away from you, sort of? Or I think it might have. But, you know, again, who, who knows? Like, adults tend to have their vivaciousness sort of drained out of them at some point anyway. Like... Sometimes I, I wonder, I think, I joke to myself when watching kids be kids. You know, if adults were to act like that, we would say they were retarded mm-hmm. or like mentally disabled or just insane. You know, like walking around, like touching things and screaming out loud and singing songs at the top of their lungs and hiding. It's not that every child goes through some trauma and loses that. Mm-hmm. It's that you become an adult and you sort of level out. So I don't know to what extent that event changed me and to what extent it was just the leveling out of becoming an adult. There's no way I could know. But I have very strong intuitions that it was the sort of central event of my life, central um, trauma, but also drama. I don't know if you wrote it or if I heard you talk about it, but you said or wrote somewhere that most writers do have a trauma. You know, most people I love have some kind of trauma, mm. something that's in their past. It doesn't necessarily have to be an injury or it doesn't have to be a physical injury, you know, an emotional injury, something that just shouldn't happen to a child. Mm. It's remarkable how many people have a story like that. I was talking to somebody earlier today in a sort of different context 
just about the statistics of um, sexual abuse of um, girls in particular. Something like one third of women's first sexual experience was unwanted. Mm. You know, it's a huge amount of childhood trauma. And again, taking sometimes very explicit forms like abuse and sometimes very, very subtle forms like an absent parent, you know, that that can be a different kind of trauma. And we grow in response to them. Mm. When I hear you talk about your um, writing, it doesn't seem like it was your sort of childhood dream. But what was your dreams growing up then? I don't think I had very many dreams growing up. I was much more present, you know, doing those neighborhood things. There's a point, I guess, around when I went to college that I wanted to be a doctor. That was an idea that I had to be an obstetrician and deliver babies. Why? I, you know, I don't know. I get, I like babies. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, I guess being so regularly part of such a joyful experience would be nice. Mm. You know, I often think about how unobvious it is what's good about writing. You know, no no obstetrician goes home at the end of the week and says, oh, I delivered 20 babies this week. What's the point? You know, <laughs> but for writing, it's just not at all obvious what the point is. Maybe even back then, I wanted to live a life whose good was obvious to me. That's interesting. I've conducted perhaps 250 interviews or something like that in my podcast, most in Swedish. But there's no person in show business, I would say, that hasn't at one point thought about getting a real job, so to speak. Well, is there anybody on earth who hasn't at one point <laughs> thought about getting another job? Well, other than what they have, you know, to say. But it's also a little bit, I mean, for me, your writing has sort of changed my life in a way. You're a fantastic author. But it's a little bit provoking to me that it wasn't something that you knew you you were going to do. And at the same time, it's hopeful. At what time did you know? Because it feels like you hardly knew up until this book that you were going to be an author. When I was a kid, back in Washington, D.C., the Washington Post, which is one of the two biggest newspapers in the country, did a feature in their art section where they asked a huge number of artists, I want to say like 500, what would be the one work of art that they would take with them to a desert island if they could only have one thing? Could be a movie. So I guess we're assuming you have a TV on this desert island. A book, piece of music, theater, whatever. Painting. An absolutely huge number. You would think 500 artists would come up with about 500 answers. A huge number of them, maybe a third, all said the same thing. You want to try to guess what it was? The Bible. Nope. Okay. Is it more... Uh, I, I would bet you very few would say that just because <laughs> of... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, Catcher in the Rye. No. Okay. Ter- terrible guess. Uh, sorry. Uh, it was um, Bach's Unaccompanied Cello Suites. So the interesting thing about that answer is that they weren't written as a piece of music per se. He had written them as a finger exercise, Mm. something to warm up with playing. So the artist's work of art, the piece of art that most artists would choose above all others, was something that wasn't even created as a work of art. 
you know, it was created as a finger exercise. I always, I teach at NYU and I always tell my students that, that we put so much emphasis on our intentions. I think we put a great overemphasis on our intentions and it can be constraining. You know, it feels ambitious or it feels willful, but it can be very constraining. You only end up making the thing that you intend to make in a best case scenario. And if you can instead just be more open to what will come and sort of worry about what it is later, one could be very surprised. So I don't know that there's any anything so good about knowing that you are a writer or knowing that you're working on a book about, you know, the history of violence or, you know, living with some uncertainty is not only like tolerable, but I think it can produce more exciting results. Mm. At your public conversation, you said something about your writing, and when uh, tell me about your day when you because you said something really interesting about your work day. Uh, just the the routine of it. Yeah. So basically, I devote the first bit, however long that bit will take, to work that is toward no end or that feels in a way useless to me. But are you disciplined with that during that hour? Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm not very disciplined about working at all. I mean, there are many, 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 many days when I don't work. And I don't know that I have a very good work ethic. Or maybe I do. It's just different than other people's. But I don't feel compelled to write, basically. Um, When I do write, I spend the first hour, two, or three working on something that has no obvious purpose, you know, isn't necessarily the characters in my novel or has nothing to do with the plot of my novel, but something that just interests me as a kind of one-off piece. Something to warm up the fingers, if you like. Exactly. And um, sometimes it will be a riff on, I don't know, a story that I was recently overheard or read or a fact that I learned or an image that I saw. Sometimes I have no starting point. And I just kind of sit there and drop the bucket down into my mind and see if anything comes up. Mm. And it could be a, an utterly random and seemingly useless thing like, I don't know, bricks. I'm thinking about bricks right now. No idea why, but let's just think about it. Okay, what do we know about bricks? You're looking at this Stockholm City Hall, which is made up. Well, you're looking at it. No, oh, I am? Oh, it's uh, over there. Yeah, okay. can't see it. <laughs> yeah, that is made up of bricks. That is why I said it, isn't it? It probably I don't is. Know. I mean, bricks are interesting. Mm. Yeah, bricks are bricks are interesting. Anyway, so I might do a little bit of research. Can I just say something about bricks? Yeah, bricks in this part of Sweden has a different uh, color than the ones in the south because the mud is different. I right? guess so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yellow down there. Well, I love London brick, mm. which is this particular kind of yellow, like a smudgy, dirty yellow. Mm. It's one of my favorite things. And people manipulate brick. You know, they will. Someone might buy an old building and take it apart and then sell the old brick for someone else to make a new building. So you have someone who dug up mud, formed it into bricks, formed that into a building, took down the building and used that mud that has been formed into bricks for a different building. Um, There are stories of institutions, you know, burying bricks for certain periods of time to age them, to make them seem, they call it American universities will do that sometimes. My favorite work of architecture in the world it's actually in Finland, and it's Alvar Aalto's 
experimental house. It's called the most incredible brickwork I've ever seen. Mm. And not unlike the um, Bach cello suites, nobody knows if he did it on purpose or not. Like Mm. if it was him learning to lay brick and experimenting with different ways of doing it, or if he said, this is how I think it should look, Mm. you know, and it's just my favorite thing. I could look at it all day long. So anyway, I might find something to think about. I might look around the room say, you know, as in this room, like it's a kind of fun way to be in a room. You know, is there anything in here that is moving to me or interesting to me? I don't know if you've noticed, but there are four busts heads in this room and two of them are the same, but made out of different materials. No, I didn't notice that. Yeah. And one is a little bigger than the other, but it's one of them. That's one of them. Yeah. And the other one is over there and they are identical. It's the same. Oh, that one is right there, right? Yeah. So they're identical. They're the same mold, obviously. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Do you know who that is? This is... I don't even know if this is a man or a woman. It's a woman. It's uh, It's funny. I would have guessed a man. uh, That's Astrid Lindgren. Did you read uh, Pippi Longstocking, perhaps? Um, No, I didn't. But everybody else has. Yeah, but you know about her. Yeah. Yeah. But Tova Janssen is Norwegian. Finnish. Finnish. Yeah. She's great. Yeah? She was, yeah. Anyhow, so you write about something. I spend a certain amount of the day working on whatever and can i just ask you how long has this been going on this book no oh no i'm telling you since i wrote this oh, okay book. okay yeah. so it's a fairly new thing yeah in the last two years maybe yeah, okay three cool. years and then at some point i run out of steam with that i feel like i've written a little self-contained sometimes it's a paragraph sometimes it's two pages mm. it's rarely rarely more than two pages and then i go back into my book and i work on my book and the way i work on my book is I go back to whatever chapter I was working on. I start at the beginning and I reread it. So it's 50 pages, 70 pages, whatever it is. I, I will read it from the beginning all the way through and edit as I go. I don't really do drafts of books, just this kind of moving through. I don't know if you know the um, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Have you ever been to San Francisco? Yeah, I've crossed it a few times. Yeah. Yep. And um, the air there is so salty and corrosive that when the painters reach one end of it they have to go back to the beginning and start again mm. and my editing is a little bit like that and have you ever seen the movie The Bridge it's a movie about suicides from the Golden Gate Bridge I didn't know it's actually I don't I don't even know what the right adjective is but they set cameras on the bridge for I think three years and there's film people committing suicide from it and then they talk to the families and try to understand who these people are so I go back through my work, I move forward as I edit, and I try to push ahead a couple pages, one page, two pages. Does it happen that you hate the stuff that you've written? Does it happen that I don't? It's the real question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, almost every single time I look at it, I hate it. That's just a very regular feeling for me. Oh, wow. But I've learned to be patient and to sort of forgive myself for everything, <laughs> you know? And if I'm patient and if I can quiet that feeling or walk away and come back, it's often okay. Sometimes I do hate it, but I know that it's like a reflexive response that's not really to be trusted. So so then at the end of the day, I will return to the bricks and, um, and I'll just ask myself, does this have any use? Is there anywhere that this could go? And sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is yes. But when the answer is yes, it often becomes the writing that I'm most 
proud of and that kind of fits into the story in the most mysterious and intuitive and true way. It feels, as a teacher, I talk a lot about the difference between things that are applied and things that are revealed. So like icing is applied to a cake to make it look nice and to make it tasty. But everybody knows it was applied and it loses some specialness because of that knowledge as opposed to something that feels like it was found in nature. And in writing, things that feel like they were found are better than things that were applied. So You rarely find stuff that is found on a cake, though. That's you wouldn't revealed. eat it. Yeah. No? Yeah. Even if you were to find a beautiful cake in nature, you probably wouldn't eat it. No. But what you do sometimes find, here's an example, is have you ever sent a cake to be like you know, personalized for somebody's birthday or whatever like that. Yeah, they, I think so, yeah. And it comes back and there's a spelling mistake or like a typo or a, and it turns out to be really funny and strange. Like they accidentally are wishing a two-year-old a happy 20th birthday or misspell the word love, you know, something like that. Like a Freudian icing typo. And then that's an example of something that would be unearthed rather than applied, which can provide, I mean, that's a special cake all of a sudden. You know, I have a friend in D.C. who's still there, whose house was struck by lightning the other day, and there was a little fire, but it was okay. Everything was okay. And she called me really upset, like, oh, God, our house was struck by lightning, there's a little fire, and I don't know how we're going to tell our daughter, and she'll never feel safe again. I said, are you kidding me? like the best thing that ever could have happened just the greatest thing that could have happened and there's a way to tell her so she won't be scared just actually you can say the truth which is that they didn't have a lightning rod but now they do and so it will never be a problem again it's a very matter of fact solution no need to worry but you live in the house that was struck by lightning you should make a a flag that has a lightning bolt on it you know because that's one of those things that was unearthed rather than applied you could buy all the beautiful furniture in the world for a house and it will never be as special as the house that was struck by lightning mm. I guess uh, you could draw a parallel to David Bowie's uh, way of writing music because he's said to have written stuff all along and then sort of remix it at the end to make up lyrics. What do you mean? He wrote lines and then he would just sort of cut and paste them a bit? Yeah, I think it's called cut-up technique, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the poet Joseph Brodsky said the rhyme is smarter than the poet. Mm. And it's, one of, it's an idea that I find so compelling Yeah. that the process will give you better results than your intention. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I wanted to quote uh, the great poet um, Baba Sparks mm -hmm. when we talked about your uh, writing. I ain't chose to rhyme. Rhyming chose me. Right. Yeah? Right. Does that apply to your uh, career? 
I mean, it, it's there's a kind of in a way it's it's a, what the book is about, you know, that um, to what extent we have choices, what choices are available to us, what choices we choose not to have. Like, do we end up where we are because of who we were, or do we end up where we are because of circumstances out of our control? I find all of that, especially as I get older, I'm nowhere near as old as you, but I find all of that <laughs> very provocative. Yeah. You will never be as old as me. Well, it may happen, actually, yeah. if you were to pass away and be dead at 46 or whatever. Yeah, that's true. And then at some point I'd be 47 and I could say I am now older. But your novels are extremely original to me. I mean, there's nothing like your writing in a way. I mean, why didn't you just write regular books? Uh, I think that there's a kind of strange paradox in the world, which is that I really do believe that each person's imagination, each person's concerns ways of seeing the world each person's kind of selfhood is really singular really original and yet when we share that singularity it's like recognized by another person i am unique in the way that you are unique which is a paradoxical statement so one question is like to what extent do you trust your own sensibility and it's hard when you are something like a writer because there are so many models of what writing might look like and every time you read a book it further solidifies it can't help it but further solidify your notion of what a book is and what the form is it's not a coincidence that every single novel we read is between what 75 and a thousand pages some more or less and that 90% of them are between 300 and 500 It's not just that every story to be told happens to be that long. It's that we know that's what a novel is. And deliberately or subconsciously, we structure our stories to take up the right amount of space. So there's a huge amount of conscious and unconscious structuring of ourselves. I happened to be listening to something when I couldn't sleep last night about shoes. And the person was saying... If you are just capable of like pausing for a moment and not being swept up by the sort of accepted notions of how things are, if you're capable of trying to look at things freshly, shoes suddenly seem so weird. Just these like massive leather coffins that we put our feet in. We entirely hide them from public. We entirely hide them from elements. They are apparently the part of our body with the third most nerves in them and we basically cancel out all feeling through our feet um, we were of course evolved not to have shoes imagine if we wore things like shoes on our hands I mean you could say gloves but big clumsy gloves mittens all day long everywhere we would say like that's bizarre mm. but we're so used to seeing it's very hard to unsee the world or to see yeah. it in a different yeah. way um So with writing, it's very hard to unsee the models. I think I was helped in a certain way by not having been a huge reader when I was younger. So those models didn't have perhaps quite as much influence on me. 
I also tend to do terribly when I am working on something or living with something that I know isn't right for me. I'm not great at just like going with the flow. I start to become very agitated and feel claustrophobic and panicky. So I throw away a huge amount of writing and I walk away from a lot of things that are probably pretty great. You know, it's not so noble what I'm describing. You know, I worked on this TV show for about three years with HBO and it was green lit and it was ready to be filmed and we had great actors and everything about it was great. And all of a sudden I just kind of knew somehow I was actually on a seaside town in Denmark at the time. And I just knew it wasn't really for me. It wasn't my thing. And I stopped and I lost three years of work and it was not the greatest professional move I could have made. So I think some of the things that you might be thinking of as originality aren't exactly originality. They're more like an inability to stick with something that doesn't make me comfortable. And I have a hard time feeling comfortable in the world for whatever reason. And, um, you know, it's not a coincidence that so much of the art that has been made, let's say in America, in the 20th century, came from people who were in uncomfortable positions. So the music, the great music of the 20th century came largely from the African-American community. The great visual art came largely from the gay community. A lot of the great writing came from the Jewish community. These are people who are outsiders, who are not comfortably embedded in American culture. And so maybe necessity is the mother of invention. There's just a need to find something that would be comfortable, which could seem like an original way of being. But maybe it's not exactly a creative act so much as one of like seeking a kind of relief or something. I don't know. But it takes a little bit of guts to not give a fuck about how a novel, for instance, is supposed to be written. Well, it takes guts if you want to be a celebrated writer. You know, I didn't. It wasn't really on my radar. Um, I didn't really want to be a writer at all. Or I didn't know if I did. So it didn't take any guts because okay. what's the worst thing that happens? Mm-hmm. You know, I write something that's feels good to me and it doesn't feel good to other people. And okay, it's no great tragedy. It still wouldn't be a great tragedy. It would be uncomfortable now, you know, to be roundly rejected. Um, you know, anything I write, some people are going to like, some people are going to hate. That's just the way it goes. To be roundly rejected would be hard now in a way that it wouldn't have been hard when I was 20, 25. But life would certainly go on. But, I mean, your uh, first book was a great success. I guess it comes with freedom to have that kind of success. But it also comes with pressure. How has that affected you? Has it been a struggle for you? I don't know. It was the only experience I had. There is pressure in having success. There's also pressure in not being able to publish your book. And there's pressure in publishing a book that nobody reads. And there's pressure in publishing a book that is panned by critics. You know, there's always pressure. I had my own version of pressure. I think most people would say it was the luckiest version to have. You know, so I was definitely aware of my luck and my good fortune. I don't know how aware I was of the challenges that were involved. Probably in retrospect, I wish I had confronted some of that sooner and really given more thought to 
what it meant to suddenly be a public person or what it meant to have readers who have expectations. It feels to me, looking at your life from the outside, that you have been good with taking care of the freedom that you've got. What makes you say that? For instance, you didn't publish a novel for 11 years or something like that. You chose to write a very, very thorough book about uh, the meat industry and so forth. It feels like you've done what you wanted. Yeah, I don't know if they've always felt like choices. You know, that's like saying, to me, it's like saying you chose not to hold your breath for an hour and instead inhaled, you know, well... Was that really a choice? Like, I guess I could have forced a project. It didn't feel like it at the time. You know, I felt like I was writing as efficiently as I could. It's just my version of efficiency is at times very efficient and at times very, very inefficient. So when I look back on my career so far, I don't remember a lot of choices. I really don't. Do you feel that you've made mistakes? Yeah, of course. But they're not necessarily mistakes I would correct. You know, like when I carry a book around of um, my, for readings, there's a million red marks that I put all through them on every page. This one is a fairly new copy. It doesn't have all that many, but even it has some. And I have opportunities to make changes, like when a new edition comes out or something. But I've never made a change. And I think... Because, you know, I want my books to sort of capture my concerns at the time that I wrote it. And my concerns change, but the book shouldn't try to change. It would be like taking clothes I wore as a five-year-old to a tailor and saying, could you make these fit? You know, tailor could maybe do it. It would be a very, very awkward process. And it would be better to just have new clothing. Yeah. On the other hand, I've been talking to songwriters about that because there's no actual reason in this day and age for a song to ever be finished. You know, if you want some more horn on your new single, three weeks after the release, you can just put a new edit on Spotify or whatever. I guess it would, I mean, maybe not now because we do have the printed uh, version of your book here, but you could change it for the rest of your life basically i think there are a few problems with that i mean kanye pretty much does that right my my impression is he's always going back into songs one of the problems is it's unfair to a reader like you know you listen to a song in two minutes so if someone says hey there's a new mix out of it okay i'll give it a listen if someone says hey you know a few sentences were changed in this book you might want to know what they are but it takes forever to read a 600 page book But even more than that, I don't want to change something that was made by a previous version of myself to conform to the present version of myself. It just doesn't, it feels, you know, for me, books aren't like a vertical ladder where I'm just trying to get higher and higher and better and better. It's more like it's a horizontal where I want to capture where I am in a certain moment in time. And the idea of trying to pull it forward to fit me I would lose something it would corrupt the point of it Hmm. could you tell me about that because I've heard you talk about that HBO uh, show earlier as well could you tell me what it was it had some similarities to Here I Am in the sense that there was a family going through 
a difficult passage that was inspired, as in the book, by a discovered affair on a cell phone. But there are a lot of differences. There's no Israel material. The lead character, the Jacob character, was a rabbi, actually, who was a kind of fallen rabbi. Like he led a community, but had all kinds of like personal deficiencies. So we basically grew with the family. We watched this family change in ways that are analogous to some of the changes in the in the novel. Was it your initiative? To write it in the first place? Yeah. Yes and no. I got a call one day from a producer who I'd known and respected. And he said, would you like to adapt this book that I have the rights to? And I said, no, I'm not really interested in adapting anything. Fine. Hung up. He called me back. I want to write something new. Mm. I don't know. When people ask me to do something, I very often say yes. I mean, it's true of most people. Like, a lot of people are just happy to say yes to things, to try. They're just never asked. And I was asked, and I said yes. And then I started writing it, and it just kind of took off. And it kept getting more and more intense. And, yeah, I worked on it for about two and a half years. And you said that you just didn't feel it was right for you at the time or something like that. But do you have regrets about that? No. I didn't know very much. I would be happy, I suppose, to write a TV show or to write a movie. But it's not that simple. You have to be involved in this huge infrastructure and be on set and deal with actors and deal with directors and deal with agents and lawyers and deal with schedules. I really don't like schedules. And I just, that lifestyle wouldn't work for me, creatively or in terms of just my happiness. All right. I said earlier that I wanted to talk to you about your humor. Do you have any sense about where it comes from? Um, well, I mean, it's sort of asking a larger question about where humor itself comes from. And there are a lot of interesting theories about that. Some people have speculated that Humor is a way to communicate that something that seemed like a threat isn't a threat. So, for example, like the most classic of all gags or jokes is somebody slipping on a banana peel. So if you and I looked out this window and we saw somebody slip on a banana peel and get up and look around and be really embarrassed and brush himself off, we'd probably chuckle at that. If we saw him slip on a banana peel and not get up, we wouldn't chuckle at that. So I think we chuckle at the first thing because we're aware of the possibility of the second thing and if you think about like babies or children and how they laugh I remember when my my kids were babies I could make them laugh by like nibbling at their neck or like putting socks on my ears or throwing them up in the air and if you just think about it those are very scary things if you're not really familiar with the world like an animal attacks at the neck I was disfiguring my face. He didn't know that, that there were socks I could put on and off. And of course, throwing a kid in the air holds the potential of not being caught. And so whenever I do those things, the first time they wouldn't laugh. Then I'd repeat it a few times and they'd start to laugh. They find it funnier and funnier the more I did it because they were more aware that the threat was not really a threat, that they were safe. Um, some people think that even a smile developed from baring one's teeth, you know, like a dog does when somebody would approach and then when we realized that we knew them or that it was okay we would relax our lips into a smile 
I think a lot of humor is some kind of response to some kind of fear or anxiety or repression, but basically a response to something negative. And in my life, at least some of the time that's been the case, a lot of my humor sort of involves taboo, like saying the thing that other people wouldn't say or that you're not sure if it's okay to say. And then we realize it is okay to say it, you know, and that makes, that's funny. And at some cases, no, it wasn't okay. <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, I mean, in the year 2017, almost everything is okay. It's hard to think of all that many jokes where somebody would really take offense, but it happens sometimes. Certainly there are jokes I don't say out loud because of that concern. I think so, a lot of what we do is in response to its opposite in our lives, you know. Writing is often in response to silence. You know, the inability to communicate something in life is met by an act of communication in a different form, in a book or elsewhere. So, you know, growing up, there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk about, like the Holocaust we didn't talk about. Jewish families after World War II have a lot of repression and a lot of silences and subjects that are sort of off-limits. And so it doesn't seem so surprising that a lot of the comedians after the war have been Jewish. Mm. But were you interested in, in comedy growing up? Not comedy, not cultural comedy. Not really. I was interested in making my family laugh. Mm -hmm. That was sort of my version. I don't I don't remember. Like we weren't listening to Woody Allen records or Bill Cosby records. Um or even like watching Seinfeld when I was young. I don't just don't remember those as being a big part of my life. Mm. You did a Q&A in Edinburgh, I think, like a year ago. And I think you got a question about your definition of success. And you said something along the lines of that you weren't really sure what success was, but you sure knew what failure was. What is your relationship with failure? I think failure is the awareness of living dishonestly or fraudulently in art, in life, in a relationship. It's forgivable to live dishonestly because we're often not aware of it until later. It's the being aware of it and continuing to do it that feels like failure to me. So, you know, with writing, oftentimes I'll write 30, 50, 100, 200 pages of something. And then it's not until I get to a certain point, oftentimes like so much later than I'd have wished, that I realized this isn't good. This isn't me. This isn't what I want to do. This is dull. This is a lie. This is manipulative. And then I stop. I don't feel like a failure at that point. But in the periods when I keep plodding ahead, just knowing, maybe only deep down, maybe only subconsciously, that it's not right, and I keep going with it, that feels like failure to me. Mm. In a way, that has to do with taking care of your time, right? It does, but also taking care of my selfhood, you know? I guess two ways of looking at it. One is I don't want to spend my finite amount of time not being myself. Yeah, I mean, that that's how I look at it, which has both to do with a wasting of time and a wasting of self. Mm. I noticed that you don't seem to be on social media. Is that a choice about that? 
I guess it's a choice, although it's a very easy choice. It's not one that I think about a lot. It's easy, not because I think it's so stupid, but because I just have never really done it. I've never had exposure to it. And I have enough things to like worry about and that deserve my attention and require my attention. And I suspect, given what I've seen in other people's experiences and what I know about myself, I could probably easily become like addicted to it. And sometimes when I'll you know pass a bakery with unbelievable looking pastries in it, just put my head down and keep walking because I know I'm not really hungry for it. And just because it looks amazing doesn't mean I have to go in. It can be its own thing over there and I can pass it happily. And my life is not going to be actually any better. And there are many ways in which it will be less good if I were to indulge every like, curiosity or thing that seems passingly interesting. I also happen to find what I know of Facebook and Twitter just not for me. Like they kind of, the way people talk is just not something I'm interested in. I, I don't judge it. Good for them if they are. But it's just not for me. When you release a book, for instance, you never do a Twitter search on your own name or something like that. No. You don't Google yourself. Uh, I, I used to. Yeah. Yeah, but then I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I haven't in years and years and years. But I, again, I find it very easy. It's not, I don't sit at the computer typing and deleting and typing and deleting. It's just not, there's nothing for me there. You know, I know that oftentimes people do things even though they know there's nothing for them there. But I just know it so surely. Like, what the fuck is Twitter going to tell me that's going to make my life the tiniest bit happier or deeper or like be a better use of my time about myself? I can imagine people saying like, oh, I get a news feed through Twitter or I learn about culture through Twitter. Okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Sure. I just don't happen to engage in that because I don't really know how or I don't, I don't know, I get news elsewhere. I don't feel it missing. But in terms of my relationship to myself, to my like writing life or having a public identity, it just has nothing to offer. It would give you probably some, uh, I mean, people think you're a genius. So if you want to hear that I think Twitter is the place to go okay so it's T-W-I-T-T-E-R now, now we're talking yeah. people think all kinds of things plenty of people think I'm an asshole it's just you know who cares like when somebody comes up to me at a reading and talks to me that really means something to me and there's a sense in which by doing readings I'm seeking that and I don't mean praise because all the time you'd be surprised how often people come up to me at readings and say like I wish you'd done this thing differently in your book or I was really confused by this part I'm not seeking something good or bad but the connection with the person on the other side that feels rich and it feels rich I think in large part because it's whatever the opposite of anonymous is like it's very present and you can look in somebody's eyes and they can look in yours and that feels good in my profession, I'm a freelancer. I can be 99% of the time, I can be wherever I want to be. So I wouldn't say that 90% of that time, but maybe 40 is on my couch. And uh, oftentimes I have a bad conscience. In Sweden, we talk about Lutheranism as when you do your chores, sort of. That's a Lutheran way of living. And I can feel uh, when I don't actually produce that comes with guilt can you relate to that do you feel guilt for not producing when you're not productive i do but i wouldn't say productiveness is or productivity is limited to writing like 
I might clean my room and suddenly feel productive again or write a letter to a friend or even something as simple as going for a walk. Like those feel productive in the sense that they feel like good uses of time and some of them are only symbolically good, like cleaning a house. You know, it's a symbol of productivity, but it doesn't necessarily matter all that much. Going for a walk feels totally unproductive in a certain sense, but the experience of it feels like time well spent to me. I feel good when I do that. And relatedly, sitting and like slaving away at some piece of writing that I don't like feels totally unproductive. It's just a stupid use of time. It's bad. But if I'm working on something and it's feeling really good, I would want to sit with it for as long as I can because then it feels good. So I think about it a lot. And I think, you know, those thoughts, as you were saying, for you and for me are informed by a kind of guilt. And for both of us, they're informed by a kind of like religious guilt. You know, it's not a coincidence that you described it in the way you did or that I would, it would make me feel like a Jewish guilt. Like religion has given me an awareness of how I, maybe in a negative way, as much as a positive way, how I spend my time. Mm. Do you still teach writing? I, I do, yeah. Yeah. What's your best advice? write about the things that you are really passionate about and drawn to for a couple of reasons. One, it will save you from stopping. You know, almost everybody stops. It's like if I've taught 300 students, maybe three of them are writing, you know, five years later, 10 years later, there's so many incentives to stop. It's just hard and emotionally it's hard. Logistically it's hard financially. So the best protection against stopping is not actually willpower. It's like selfishness. Like write about what you love selfishly. Be drawn to it. I think that when I read a book and I love it, oftentimes what I really mean is I love the author's love of this. You know? Like when you love something, it's contagious. If you were to say to me like, You've absolutely got to go see this thing. It's so cool. It's great. I would for sure go see it. And, you know, possibly I would disagree with you about what that thing is. But I think I'd just be really taken by your enthusiasm. And it would create an enthusiasm in me. So a lot of the stuff that's in books, the characters, the plot, we can like books because of them. But I don't know that we actually love books because of them. I think... There's a beautiful nonfiction book by a woman named Elaine Scarry called On Beauty and Being Just. And she talks about beauty as something that's contagious and inspires the creation of more beauty. Mm. I highly recommend it. Cool. And what's the best advice that you were ever given on writing? The best advice... I don't know that I've been given all that much advice. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, who was my teacher when I was in college, said the most important writerly quality is energy. And I, I think I agree. Like energy on the word and sentence level, but also on the level, you know, between books and the energy that helps one resist the desire to stop. Hmm. We're sitting here. It's the end of summer uh, 2017. What's your biggest career problem? problem yeah i don't think i have a career problem i mean there are plenty of things that could be described as problems like i don't really know what i want to work on nothing i'm working on feels great right now 
I just don't think of them as problems. They're just process, you know? In my life, many of the things that I've misdiagnosed as problems were actually just process. And if I could find ways to be just a little more patient and forgiving and slow things down a bit, not be in such a rush, not be so outcome-oriented, there's just a different way of looking at it. That's great advice. Are you happy? That's a complicated question. I don't know. I don't know exactly what happiness is. Um, you'd have to tell me what you mean by happy. I can't help you there. I think it's, I mean... There's certain things like happiness and pain that psychologists have a very hard time measuring. Because what, what do you measure it against, you know? What if a nine for me is a two for you? And we're just thinking about it. So one thing that they revert to is, are you happy by your own definition of happiness? You know? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Better. I would say that there's room for my happiness to grow. But yeah, I do feel pretty happy. Cool. Would you like to recommend anything, something, anything? <sighs> Big Sur, California. That's what I would recommend. Yeah, it's just the most beautiful place on earth. It happens to be very hard to access right now because there's a landslide on the um, highway that oh, connects. Wow. It's on a, um, a famous highway that connects California to San Francisco or northern and southern California. And it is just the greatest place in the world. I love it. I've only been there once, but it moved me so much. I keep thinking about it. And I would recommend to anybody listening to this who can get to Big Sur to go to Big Sur. Did you have lunch at Nepenthe? Maybe. What is it? I don't remember. Uh, it's like a restaurant uh, on the cliff. Yes, sort of. yeah. I think I did. Did it used to belong to a film director or something like Might, that? House? Yeah. I think um, they I, had I, a, a big fireplace in the middle of the... Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. I did. I don't remember the name, but the place you're describing, I definitely yeah. did eat at. It's one of my favorite spots in the world. Yeah. Too. Yeah, it's amazing. Cool. Who do you think I should interview? Barack Obama? <laughs> yeah, that would no, be fun. Let me think. Who do I think he should interview? Nobody comes immediately to mind. There's nobody who... It's okay. It's a standard question. I've posed it in every interview since day one. So, But I can finish that tradition now. Has anybody not been able to give you a single name? I don't think so. Because I wait, you know. I can wait longer than you can wait. Yeah. I can wait forever. Yeah. I only need to go to the bathroom like once every 12 hours. <laughs> but uh, I think your schedule is more busy than mine this afternoon. Maybe so. Yeah. So no other interviewee in this interview. Earl Sweatshirt. Okay. The rapper. All right. Cool. There you go. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Jonathan Safran for what an inspiration. I want to write about, uh, let's see, thermoses, uh, pianos, dust. Buy his books. They're all great in a bookstore near you or online. And don't follow him on social media. He's not there. If you do want to follow someone, why not me? I'm Triumf on Instagram and Twitter, although I mostly write in Swedish, but my pictures are in Esperanto. And I love doing Varvet International, so I hope I can release something fairly soon. Take care until then. Hej då! What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.